Hello everyone, good morning, good evening, good afternoon. Hey, this is Aaron, I just wanted to do a quick PSA, just to let you know that our podcast is actually looking for a new intro song. We're looking for about an original 30 second brass band composition. If you happen to be chosen, we'll invite you to be featured uh, as a guest on a bonus episode of the podcast, as well as you will get credit at the end of every podcast. So, if you're a composer or you're interested in maybe trying to compose for this, we have a, we have bands to record it. We just need the composition. So, if you're interested, please email uh, submissions to Amy at amyshumacherbliss at gmail. A M Y S C H U M A K E R B L I S S at gmail. And if you need that information, we you can also find it on our website, newworldbrass.com. But yeah, we thought it would just be great to feature some brass band music in the beginning of our podcast and as the exit outro. Um, But as you can imagine, when I was putting this together initially, there's not a lot of just like brass band music on uh, free-to-use podcast music websites. So hopefully we can find a great submission for you guys. I'm looking forward to all of your submissions. And anyway, let's get on with the show. Okay, so um, we usually start off with just kind of some banter, kind of what's been going on. So, Tony, you have you have to find a rehearsal space. You said because the because you you only have everything with a with a drum set at this point, right? Yeah, we just did a concert. It was the, the only per- well, we had other percussion there, um, but but we I programmed things that used just percussion or just a drum set. And we added some other percussion, you know, just for the gig, you know, and they they came to the last rehearsal and just kind of saw how things were going and took some notes and then then just read the read the gig. I have a really, really good timpani player that, you know, can pretty just pop pretty much just drop in any any given moment. And she she did a great job of just filling in at the last second. It's a shame that we can't have them there for all the rehearsals because it's just logistically too tough to get all the equipment from our storage shed to the to, to a rehearsal site, you know. Sure. But, but we have to find a place somewhere that has a, a band room or something that has a percussion set up for us. And, you know, I probably have about three more weeks be- to solve that problem before we get to the critical mass point where we're not going to be prepared for the next concert. It's really, it's really a mess. It's, you know, that, you know, people are scared to allow outside groups come into their, their buildings now, uh, or just don't want to assume the risk. That's right. Yeah. It's happening everywhere, Tony, I'm sure. So, uh, yeah. And bands are putting their, their seasons on hold or, not really projecting until they know for sure. So, and that, that's understandable. So we'll, yeah. we'll, we'll weather it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're just, we're, we're going forward, you know, we're planning to go to go to the contest in Huntsville and we're, you know, we're going to go after it and solve problems as they come up. Absolutely. Well, Tony, I think we have uh, an awesome guest host with us today. Do you want to introduce him? Yeah, sure. <laughs> so this is so this is Dr. Ron Holtz. Uh, he is a a founding member of the Lexington Brass Band and one of the early um, bigwigs with the North American Brass Band Association and 
one of the and pretty much wrote the book on uh, the history of Salvation Army's music programs in the United States. So I figured, you know, who better to talk to about brass banding in the United States and North America than 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 this guy? Because he's he's been there, seen it all, and is part of the you know the legacy of brass bending here. So I think that what we should probably start off with, Dr. Holtz, is talk to us a little bit about um, your family background and, and how you got into brass banding. Sure. My father was the director of the New York Staff Band and the Territorial Music Secretary in Manhattan when I was growing up uh, in Northern New Jersey. Uh, my training in brass came in the home, uh, we had a little family band, all my family played brass instruments and we sang. Plus, at our local church, what the Salvation Army calls a core, we had a very nice youth band and uh, that I began playing in probably about age seven or eight. But my father traveled all over the Eastern United States as a guest trainer and of course trying to shall we say rally the troops so every summer we went to multiple music camps and then ended up at the famous star lake music camp where my father was the program director so i was constantly involved uh, as a young as a young rising cornetist in brass band music that was my legacy that that was my uh, what i did and uh, you know, if the New York staff band was doing something in the city, we went in and heard it. Uh, I didn't, of course, go on all the trips they had, but uh, but that kind of thing, or if they went to sometimes to Maine, to say uh, Old Orchard, which is south of Portland for a, a big convention, sometimes families would join. So I was involved in brass banding from a very young age and just grew up in that, in that culture. And uh, we had very, very fine experiences uh, in, that, in that situation. So that, that's the background for me. And then by the time I was a young teenager, uh, when my father was moved to Hartford to be a, a more of a church administrator, I began to take on leadership role in my local band. So I began conducting and leading at a very young age. And uh, yeah, I had a lot of conducting experience before I even got to university. I was already doing a lot of conducting, score reading, things like that. So I really got into it. Okay. Um, how how would you say that the New York Staff Band compared to now from the back in the day? Is it the same quality of band? Was it was it a really good band, or did it has it grown in quality as the years progressed and directors changed? Well, I think there's several ways to answer that question. First of all, the band nowadays has incredible technical facility, very fine young players, and they play very, very well under Derek Lance. So let, let's kudos to Derek as he took over for Ron Wakesworth, no easy assignment because Ron brought them to a very, very high level. But the band under my father, let's just say that that was the first peak of the New York staff band. And you can hear it in their unedited recordings uh, and, and, and in their trip, for instance, their big tour of England in 1960, you had Phil Smith's father, Derek, as the principal cornet or the soloist. It was an amazing band in many ways. 
did they match the band of nowadays in technical facility? Probably not. Did they match them in terms of musicality? Yes, I would say they did. I think they played with refinement and elegance, uh, they, but again, at their level, uh, and, and of course the band got gradually better and better. Vernon Post took them to another level. Derek Smith, they have very fine conductors in there. Brief stint with uh, Brian Bowen. And then of course, Ron's long, long period of leading. So the band of my father's, and he was deputy for a long time, but he actually led it from about 54 to 63, was a very fine band uh, and, and played with great musicality and elegance, whether they were as technically as precise as the new bands. I doubt that. But on the other hand, remember the new bands sit on the shoulders of those old bands, you see. Right. And they can listen to the recordings. They can be part of that heritage and uh, and, and claim that, shall we say, that, uh, oh, I guess you would call it somehow their DNA, okay, musically. And uh, so I would say the band is doing very, very well under Derek. But the band under my father was a very, very fine band. Yeah, that's great. Do you think that... Um... Oh, oh the, those recordings that you talk about, like from the 1960 tour, are those available anywhere? Are they on? Have they made their way to YouTube yet? Or there, there are some there. There are some. Uh, for instance, if you get my book, The Proclaimers, which is the revised history of the New York Snap Band, there's a CD insert that takes you from the first extant recordings from 1922 right up into Ron Wakesworth's era. And you can hear the bands of that period. Uh, you also, some of those old recordings, the staff band put on CD. For instance, if you want to hear an amazing recording of Derek Smith playing uh, Stem and Allen's Rhapsody and Negro Spirituals, or some of, the, some, of, uh, uh, some of his early recordings like Songs in the Heart, some of these early recordings were revisited and put out in CD format. So you can track a lot of that, both in my books, but also on the staff band website. You should be able to track that down. Oh, good. How, how many books have you written? Oh, wow. It's about six or seven so far, I think, Tony. I don't know. I guess I can start counting them. <laughs> uh, New York staff band, two editions, Heralds of Victory and Proclaimers, my two volume. Uh, study of the Salvation Army bands worldwide, called Brass Bands of the Salvation Army, The Mission of Music. Um, I wrote a recent book in 2016 on the gathering of the five top bands out in Long Beach, California. I did a life study of Eric Leitzen, which is mostly about his wind and brass band production. I don't know. I'm sure I'll forget. By the way, and I've done nearly a hundred compact disc notes booklets. Minor notes. For bands, you know, you na name it, New York staff, international staff, Black Dyke, Ryan Thorpe, Brig House, Enfield, you name them. I, I've, I've done notes for those bands. Yeah, that could be a book in itself. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, uh, let's kind of jump back and talk about um, the the book you the books you were just mentioning about you know the development of brass banding in the United States because that that 
the the books that you talk about were the mission and music and and how Salvation Army brass bands came to the United States and how they developed. Um, I think is a pretty fascinating topic because it directly relates to how we see brass bands today. So, um, talk to us a little bit about about um, what's in those books and 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 how the development of brass bands through the Salvation Army came here. Sure. Well, you have two things running parallel when the Salvation Army begins to use bands for its street missions in the 1880s. Now the New York Staff Band becomes established in 1887, but there are some earlier efforts prior to that. Well, you have two things working. One is the American tradition itself. Remember in the 1880s, you may have had, I think it's the Smithsonian Institute book that projects about 10,000 village bands existing around that time. So you have that, that is the popular music of its day. Well, the Salvation Army comes in and as people join the Salvation Army, many of them are town bandsmen. They have, they bring that background. So in the early days of the, uh, of the New York staff band, for instance, trumpeter Trumbull, who led it for a short time, he was a very fine cornetist in the Elyria, Ohio, town band. So you have that tradition. On the other hand, you have the British tradition of people who are emigrating, who come over or are sent over to be part of the army's early mission. So those two traditions blend, okay, uh, in the early going. Um, boy, wouldn't it be fun to have recordings of a band from 1892? Our earliest extant recordings in the United States come from early 20s. Uh, it would be fun, but we have certainly lots of pictures and accounts of what the bands prior to that played. And I talk about it in both, in both uh, my uh, Brass Bands of the Salvation Army and in my history of the New York Staff Band. So you have these two traditions side by side. One, the American Brass Band tradition, and two, the British tradition, and they are blending. Uh, and of course, at the, at the time, the Salvation Army is developing its bands across the country. America's brass bands are morphing into wind bands. And of course, the tradition that takes off becomes the wind band, a la Sousa, a la others of that ilk from the 1880s and 1890s. But the, the Salvation Army maintains its brass band roots. By the way, the early Salvation Army bands did have woodwinds. And you, uh, for instance, the early New York staff band sported some clarinets and a, an occasional flute and piccolo. By the 1920s, they tried to have a full saxophone section. And uh, in some ways they were ambivalent about whether they wanted to be American or British, okay? Yeah. Uh, it took until the 1930s uh, for Bruce Broughton's grandfather, uh, the old Brigadier William Broughton, to banish the woodwinds and establish a true all brass band. Now remember Broughton himself, old man Broughton, he is a British emigrate. So he's gonna bring that tradition. But the instruments themselves are very American. Bell front bat baritones and neuronians, bell front altos, long model cornets with very bright sounds. Um, it's not until the 1950s that my father begins to seek out compensating 
bass and baritones, euphoniums, and tubas of matching variety. You can look at the early pictures and you can say, what, a, what an amalgam, what an incredible mixture. And uh, eventually, it's interesting, as we became more American in, our, in what we did and how we played, our instrumentation became more British. So that's, there's a bit of an irony there, okay? For instance, my dad wanted the cornets to be a little more blended. Well, they were, a lot of the guys were playing these long model cornets, which were kind of a, a compromise between a trumpet and a cornet. Well, my dad brought Derek Smith down from Canada to be a soloist and eventually convinced the entire section to play what we would call now shepherd crook cornets with deeper mouthpieces. And, and so that changes. The altos are no longer bell front, which, you know, some of the recordings, you know, I don't know how they got a good sound out of them, but they did. Quality altos, quality baritones, quality phonies. So it, it took time. It took time. But you were changing a, a balance. Now, what was more likely in America was the size of the bands. My, my dad always swore by four baritones and six altos, two on a part, rather than, than the contest variety. Right. And in the trombones, at least four. Now, you may know that the Salvation Army was always publishing music for four or more parts, up to five. Okay, whereas the contest scores, only three. Yeah. So there was that, that difference. Okay, and the New York staff band of the 50s and 60s had a very warm sound. In fact, it's interesting, when they traveled to England in 1960, what you have to remember is American bands had been on Stuttgart pitch, or what we call standard 440, since the 20s, when the US military adapted to that, okay? They followed all the military bands that they met in World War I, except the Brits initially. Now the Brits, the wind bands of Britain eventually also changed the Stuttgart pitch. The brass bands stayed to high pitch way up into the late 60s. So for instance, when the New York staff band would be heard in 1960, it would be heard warmer, okay? And psychologically, it's lower. They're playing at 440. The British bands are playing at about 458. Now, wow. Yeah. Problem is they can't really play together. Yeah. You understand? You know, it, it's a diabolical if you think about it. Eventually, the army in Great Britain provided income for the bands to eventually add tubing until such time as they could move the instrument factory and Besson as well to low, what we would call low pitch, okay? And that happened in the mid to late 60s. So there was an interesting transition there. But if you heard the New York staff band back then, they would have sounded, well, to the British, they, would have, they wouldn't have sounded as bright, you see. They would have sounded a little more mellow. And of course, my dad used a lacquer finish back then, whereas the Brits used, you know, the old silver band idea. And psychologically, maybe it even sounded different. But I, I, I think one of the other important distinctions there, by the way, uh, when Ed Gregson heard the New York staff band play in Royal Albert Hall in 1968, 
under Vernon Post. That is available, an amazing performance of Derek Smith doing the last two movements of the Hummel and the band playing the uh, Canadian folk song suite by Morley Calvert, who, by the way, we did use as a judge a couple of times at NABA. And yeah. Ed Gregson said, boy, I like this band because they don't wallow in vibrato. You see, now that's the other thing that the, <laughs> that, that the Americans brought. They had gradually, and, and you can see this in our wind band soloists as well, our American tradition less emphasized vibrato as an omnipresent thing, but only something to be used as an ornamental uh, activity. Whereas the, Brit the brass bands of Great Britain held on to that vibrato for a long time. Many of them still do, you know, if you still listen to them carefully. Although the best bands, the top bands, they can turn it off, you know, easily. Now, when I've judged the Open or I've judged all England, you know, you know the top bands are able to adapt their ornamental, you know, uh, style to whatever is called for. If it's a more modern work, they're not going to put a lot of super vibrato in there, you see, except as appropriate. But yeah, uh, our American bands uh, began to, to, to uh, shall we say, dismiss vibrato as an omnipresent uh, device years before the British. We used to call it fruity, Tony, fruity <laughs> sounds, okay? <laughs> we, know, called it, we called it washer machine vibrato. Well, yeah, I mean, th th think of uh, Nick and, and Bob Childs years ago. Those guys were amazing, but they played with real fruit, you see, and, and Nick, when Nick wants, he can ask Black Guy to give that. But, you know, Bob's son, you know, who's now... Uh, who's now at North Texas, man, you know, David can turn off that, 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 that fruity style in a nanosecond if he wants to and play straightforward style. Dep again, depending on what the style of the music is. So, you know, if you're doing some early thirties and forties test pieces or even up through early Eric Ball, certain kinds of a are very, very appropriate. Later works from Gregson on, I don't think it applies. In fact, Ed Gregson would, would get after you if you started to play Fruity in his music. So you know <laughs> what I'm saying? he would, he would, he, he would not want that, you see. So that, 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 that kind of thing. So that, 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 that's a perspective uh, of that. And I've seen our NABBA bands, by the way, Tony, um, let's talk NABBA bands too. I've seen that same uh, tradition of NABBA bands. If they had vibrato style early on, they gradually got rid of it quickly and only applied it as necessary. So if you came to a NABBA contest, even in the late eighties, early nineties, you would hear our NABBA bands sounding very much American, okay? Uh, and uh, less British. Uh, nowadays, of course, because our test pieces are so uh, as much oriented to uh, European and American music as to British, uh, it's appropriate for these bands to play with a very, we used to use the term symphonic style, Tony, whether that's accurate or not. I mean, you remember in, uh, when you were a member of my Lexington brass band, sometimes I despair because the guys wouldn't do any vibrato. 
they replaced drain. I said, now can we warm this up a little bit there? Yeah. You know what I'm saying at a particular point. On the other hand, most of the time, that's what I preferred, a straight sound, a straight symphonic sound. Not unlike a brass choir, but the blend was different. Yeah. Your orchestral horns and trumpets versus the saxhorn family, cornets, flute, and soprano. So, hey, I'm talking a lot. You, you may have other yeah. things. To well, I, I, I do, since we were talking about vibrato, um, I, you would probably be the perfect person to ask this, boys, but what are the what are the origins of group vibrato in British brass bands? Does it go, and what's the purpose that it, it developed? Because it had to start for a reason. I think it's always been there. I mean, if you think about it, the same thing is true in orchestral playing. The left hand of the string player, okay? The rate, okay? And I think that as a popular style in the brass bands of the 19th century in Great Britain, it was just what they did. In other words, some used hand vibrato, other used chin vibrato. It was, it was thought to be what you did. Same thing with operatic singers. You see, it was something that you did. On the other hand, you can read Mahler's comments about when I want vibrato and when I don't. You see, yeah. uh, one, one of the, one of the, the famous uh, quotes of all time is 